those who are four to six, you can go to your class at this time. The rest of us are going to go to uh, Romans 4. You can put a bookmark in Psalm 32. will be there at the end of our time together, not here at the beginning. I uh, have a verse here I want to share with you, and then I'll get into my introduction, uh, which is a picture on the next slide. Romans 1, 16 and 17 are the theme verses of Romans, of which you see here Romans 1, 17 on the screen. And so we'll refer to it, uh, if they are theme verses, then the rest of the book ties back to uh, these two verses, 16 and 17. And you'll see these words again, over and over again, especially today. For the gospel reveals the righteousness of God that comes from, by faith from start to finish. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So righteousness of God that comes by faith. This was Romans 1.17, which we saw several months ago. And now we'll see it again. And if you have followed along, uh, I'm going to... Um, give you an overview of the book, again, just of what we have covered. So Romans 1, 18 to 3.22 is a pretty dark judgment passage. And this is like God as our uh, prosecuting attorney. And if you are in a trial and you have a prosecuting attorney, the attorney that is prosecuting you, wants to see you convicted, and they are the best around, you're pretty nervous. How about if your prosecuting attorney is perfect? You're like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> okay, that's where Romans 3 uh, concludes with Romans 1.18 to 3.22a is God's case against us showing us our need for salvation. Okay, so salvation up here is mentioned as the gospel in Romans 1.17 and uh, Romans 1.18 starts with man suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So God is the prosecuting attorney. He's perfect, and he, has, he calls to, to evidence a lifestyle that is immoral of Romans 1. He calls up the, the morality and the choices that you make to think that you're good and you don't need a Savior in Romans 2. And then he calls up all of the, a lot of the Old Testament in the quotes of Romans 3, uh, to showing us that all, you're not the only one guilty. All of humankind is guilty. So God's case against us is perfect in that we are guilty. We know we're guilty. Our mouth is shut by the time we get to 3.22. Now 3.22b, if you want to look at that with me, uh, just one chapter before this, 322, the second part of the verse. 322 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. There's no favoritism. And here the corner turns from God's case against us to God's case 
for us. So not only is God the prosecuting attorney and he's perfect at what he does, he is also willing uh, to be the uh, helpful, the advocate, our attorney, uh, to help us and tell us the way of escape. We saw in 326 that he is there in the courtroom as the just judge and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is not only the prosecuting attorney, he's the judge, but he is the justifier. He is the only one who can make the guilty right. And that is God's three roles here in, in the courtroom. Uh, and we will see uh, throughout uh, four and five that God's case for our salvation. Now, he is not against us as he has been in one eighteen to 3.22. Now he is for us. And you can't read Romans 4 and 5 and say, God hates me. You have to conclude God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God isn't just on the throne or on the judging seat and prosecuting us and, realize, and how, watching us squirm and delighting in the fact that we're all guilty and we have no more excuses to give him. Oh no, he has provided the only way to be right with him. So we started into that last uh, two weeks, 22 to the 31 of chapter 3, and now we'll get into chapter, chapter 4. In our exchange Bible study that I do often and hope to do more often, and hopefully some of you have done with your friends, family, uh, there's a story uh, in that study of Blondine, or Blondin, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. It was a title. Uh, his real name was uh, Jean-Francois uh, uh, Gavillet, I think is how you say his last name. But he uh, rose to fame uh, as he put a tightrope uh, downstream a little bit from Niagara Falls. It's, it's said that he was above Niagara Falls, but there was a guy in 2012 that got permission to, do, to be the first one that was right over top of the Horseshoe Falls where the mist was coming up, which would make it difficult. And uh, you can look, about, look uh, him up, and he had to have a passport on his person in order to get permission from Canada and the U.S. to cross from the U.S. to Canada. So he said you can only do it if... And he had to change two laws. Uh, so for 100 years, they didn't allow anyone to do this. And so he had to get special permission... And uh, in 2012, he crossed um, with about 25 mile an hour winds, mist coming up, and he had to have a harness. He didn't like to have the harness. He said, I don't use a harness. So they said, we don't want to see you die on TV, so you have to wear a harness. He said, okay, well, he made it across. Uh, but 150 years ago, uh, Blondin uh, did all kinds of uh, acrobatic things on this tightrope uh, across, uh, and you can, he didn't have a harness across the Niagara River, just below the falls. And in our Bible study, it asked, well, it tried to de define what saving faith is. And he asked the crowd, do you think I could put someone in a wheelbarrow? It may look something li like this. 
Do you think I could put someone in a wheelbarrow and take him across the rope? Well, he had already been across the rope a number of times, and the crowd went wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who wants to volunteer? And no one wanted to volunteer. And you know why? No one, and none of you would either, and I wouldn't either. Um, is because you're thinking. If Blondin can walk across there a thousand times, and a thousand and first time he doesn't make it across, that's not good odds. Even 99.1% chance or 99.9% chance of me getting across isn't good enough odds for me to get in that wheelbarrow. You know why Blondin did this? Well, according to some facts that I was looking up about him this, um, this week, he was making about $500,000 a year 160 years ago. Okay, that was similar today. Patrick Mahomes, $50 million a year um, in football and $500,000 a year to do crazy things, death-defying things on a regular basis. He got crowds, he probably got sponsors, and yeah, he could risk it. But if, unless he was going to give you $50 million to get in his wheelbarrow, you'd say, eh, not worth the risk. I don't want to be on the news as the person in the wheelbarrow that went over, <laughs> uh, that went, uh, went over. And so faith isn't exactly like this. And let me tell you the difference. And I got, I was put on this by an article that I read this week. Uh, faith is not in a person who is fallible. As perfect as this guy was at crossing, there was a chance he wasn't going to make it across. If there was a gust of wind, 50 miles an hour, and he trained with 20 mile an hour winds, he wouldn't have been prepared for the 50 mile an hour winds. If a random bird flies and hits him in the side of the head, he can't control the bird. If you're in the wheelbarrow and you have to sneeze, you can't control your sneeze. If he's holding your wheelbarrow and he has to sneeze, <laughs> what are you going to do out in the middle of the rope? There are a lot of variables that all of us logically could maybe not think through all those scenarios, but all those scenarios could happen. And even if they are one in a hundred times or one in a thousand times, eh, still not risking my life for the fame of crossing on this tightrope, it's not worth it. A few crazy people like him, uh, thought it was worth it. So faith isn't exactly like this because Blondin was fallible. He was a human. What does Hebrews 11, and if we're going to give us a definition of faith, I'm going to take it from God's word. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance or confidence. Another translation says substance, um, I think this uh, assurance or confidence is a little bit better uh, for the Greek word that's used there. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I don't know how many times Blondin crossed that rope, but even if he crossed a hundred or a thousand times, like I said earlier, that's not enough confidence to say, what says that whenever I'm in the wheelbarrow is his time that he doesn't get across, right? And that's always in the back of our mind. 
But faith in the Bible is not, I have faith that the Bruins will be the best team in hockey as they were last year, and they'll actually not choke in the playoffs, and they'll win the Stanley Cup. Okay? That's faith in too many, it's not a guarantee. But according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the confidence of things hoped for, and it is the conviction that word means evidence or proof of things not seen. How do we know that God exists? We have evidence and proof all around us. Romans 1 actually talks about that in creation. Everyone that you and I talk to in evangelism, there's evidence and proof for a creator. Why do people reject it? Because they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That doesn't change the truth. That changes their perception of the truth. When the truth is revealed, there is a creator God. He did create the world in six literal days. How do we know that? Because Genesis 1 makes it as clear as God can make it in the Hebrew language. Evening and morning, the first day. Evening and morning, the second day. Evening and morning, the third day. So our faith in our creator is not like a faith in an acrobat who may slip. The bird may come. He may have to sneeze. We may have to sneeze. Too many variables. Not sure. It's not guaranteed. So why is faith in God a guarantee? Well, doubting man is logical, and the more that's on the line, the more logical it is to doubt a man. But doubting God is not logical, because God is perfect. Now, we can try to, in suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, think that God is like us and is not perfectly uh, reliable, trustworthy, but God could put a man in a wheelbarrow and take him across the, any river, any height, no matter what, is, because God controls nature. God controls everything. God is not like man. He is not fallible. He doesn't get weak. He doesn't get tired. He never slumbers or sleeps. So God is different than Blondin because God is perfect. And we tell people, you can trust in Jesus. And they're saying, ah, yeah, but what about the one time that I put my trust in him and he's got a thousand people across and I'm the person that's in the wheelbarrow when he, he slips. He doesn't slip. Jesus never promises something and can't follow through because he's perfect. And we'll see that later in Romans, where all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All. Not 199.9%. Oh, man, because what assurance is that? You would be as terrified and trusting in a Savior that saved 99.9% as you would be if you're in a wheelbarrow up above a, a gorge, expecting this would be your last day. 
So faith is assurance. So faith in the Bible is, is attached to something that is true. Not something that I wish, that I hope. It is the conviction, the evidence or proof of things not seen. Yes, but I am assured, I have confidence in what my hope is because I know that my confidence is something that I have evidence for, that there is proof. We'll build this case as we look at Romans 4 and 5 because in any case, the evidence comes in gradually. It's not all at once. And so uh, we can't look at all of Romans 4 and 5 together. So we'll look at uh, verse by verse here, looking at verse 1. So God gives his righteousness. Let's look at verse 1 of Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. One of the most quoted verses of the Old Testament in the New. You will see it in James. You'll see it in Galatians. You'll see it here. And this is, if you can see on the screen, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham left his homeland, went to a, on a journey that he did not know where he was going. And that's, that's Genesis 12. So he had to exercise faith. He didn't have children, and he was told, you're going to have a child by Sarah. Sarah is now past age of having children. And he had to trust God that God was going to provide a child miraculously because Sarah was past the time of childbearing years. And he had to trust in the Lord completely to provide a child through Sarah. And he, in Genesis 15, 6, he believed in the Lord and God counted or reckoned it to him as righteousness. You'll see counted or this, this word means calculated. You'll see that at the end of all three sections today. And you'll see it there in the last part of verse 3. It was counted to him or reckoned to him, credited to him, is another way of saying this word, as righteousness. When we get to Romans 3, as we read through Romans 1, 2, and 3, you're like, no one is righteous, no, not one. There is no one that has God's righteousness or any righteousness on their spiritual bank account. Everyone is bankrupt spiritually. Theologians call this total depravity. We are depraved. We have nothing good to offer God. Nobody has anything good to offer God. And yet God gives, offers his righteousness as a gift. This gift of offering his righteousness is illustrated in the Old Testament. So what was, if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. That means he wouldn't be right with God if he trusted in his works for his righteousness. Now, Abraham lives 2,000 years before Romans. We live 2,000 years after Romans. It's the same. God shows no distinction he doesn't treat Abraham differently than he treats us. He didn't treat Abraham different than he treated the Jewish people. He didn't treat Jewish people different than he did the Gentiles. God treats everyone the same. How do we know that? Because he says in verse 22 of chapter 3, there's no distinction. God always, he's perfect. 
And so Abraham gains nothing according to the flesh. He is not right with God because of his works. If he can boast about his works, well, look at what I've done. And Abraham has a lot to boast about. He left his homeland. He left his family. He's trusting in God to perform a miracle. He goes into a land that he has no inheritance in, and he has to buy a plot of land just to bury his wife. He has no logical reason to be there other than this is where God told him to be. So when it comes to illogical things that Abraham does, he goes against the culture. This is like leaving all of your wealth, leaving your family, and going to where you think God wants you to go, as missionaries do today, as my wife and I did coming here, Pastor Ty did in coming here, that we didn't come here for family. I have no family around here. I came here. This is where God wants uh, us to be. Um, and so we, have, we could have things to boast about, but all of that boasting gets you nowhere with God. You see that in verse 2. Abraham has something to boast about when it comes to works, but not before God. His leaving his homeland was in Genesis 12. He doesn't receive God's righteousness until Genesis 15. He is not right with God until God gives him his righteousness, God's righteousness. And when Abraham trusted God alone, which you can see Abraham trusting his own understanding and lying about his wife and trying to take matters into his own hands, it wasn't until Abraham fully, completely trusted God that then God gave him his righteousness. So it is illustrated in the Old Testament. And if God gives his righteousness as a gift, it always eliminates boasting. You can see here, Abraham had nothing to boast about. Paul's writing to the Romans, you have nothing to boast about. And we have it on our church sign, like I've said before, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. We cannot boast about I have what all I have done to make me right with God. We're in God's family. We sang about it, rejoicing. We, we read about it in uh, in uh, Gen or, uh, Psalm 32, which we'll get to at the end. And yet we, we can rejoice, but we cannot boast. God gives his righteousness the same way he did to Abraham. If you're Jewish, thinking you're related to Abraham because you're Jewish, Paul and Jesus and John the Baptist would go after you and the apostles and say, you're not right with God. Stephen preached in Acts 7, you're not right with God because you're related to Abraham. You have to have God's righteousness. And if you have to have God's righteousness, then boasting is eliminated, which you see that in 1 to 3. Now verse 4, now to the one who works for his righteousness, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you and I work for a living and your employer gives you a check every week, as I get paid once a week here, uh, it is not a gift. It is what I am earning. Right? This, this makes sense. Um, and I explain it. I explain it to people. I explain the gospel to, to children and say, okay, so salvation is a gift. Whenever you get to your birthday party, and your relatives are there, and your parents are there, your family's there, and they give you gifts, and before you can open them, 
They make you clean the house, wash the dog, wash the car. Uh, and they have a whole list. And everybody that got you a gift says, wait, before you open that, you have to work for me. And every child's going to say, what? I thought this was my birthday. These are not gifts. This is wages. We understand that. It's simple. Romans 6, 23 is going to summarize it in, in one verse for us. But here he says, to the one who works for righteousness, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what's owed him. And to the one who does not work, but believes, trusts, has faith. That's the same word, uh, faith. In him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he's going to explain. He illustrates it in the Old Testament. Then he's going to go on in these two verses to explain. It's explained. What's it explained? That God gives righteousness as a gift. If you can earn it with works, it's not a gift. It's what you earn. But it says here, it's very clear, no one gets righteousness by works because apart from the law, no one is justified. We saw that back in chapter 3. So now in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Pause there, go back to verse 26 of chapter 3. Who is the one who can justify the ungodly? Well, let's ask another question. Who's ungodly? From Romans 1, 18 to 3.22, did you see yourself there? You should have. You know why? Because all people are there. All people on the planet are ungodly. Say, what? That's offensive. That's true. People need to be offended by the truth. So, ungodliness is by our nature. We'll see that in Romans 5. We get ungodliness from Adam and from our parents, and we make ungodly choices. We are sinners by birth and sinners by choice. And there is one person who can make the ungodly right with God or can justify the ungodly. And so now let's look at Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has designed salvation so that nobody gets to heaven by his works. Everyone is guilty, and you must trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's salvation. That's how God has designed it. You can hate that design. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. You can't design something better or different because you're not the creator. You can't speak, and all that we see here in nature leaps into existence in, in a second. You can't do that. Nor can you leave the glories of where you created from and become like your creation. You can't do that either because you're part of creation. We are all natural. We are not supernatural. God is outside of nature. And when we, we can see that, how do we know God is outside of nature? Look at the life of Jesus. He defied nature. 
Everyone who can walk across a tightrope has to abide by the laws of nature. One like balance and gravity. Right? You can't defy those. But Jesus does defy gravity when he walks on water. He defies all the laws of nature with miracles. Raising the dead? He defies death. We'll get to the resurrection as evidence, proof of where our faith should be in the future. But God explains that God gives his righteousness in the New Testament. And it's, it's clear in verses 4 and 5. The one who works, and let me tell you this, billions of people in the world are working to try to get their salvation. They are going to great lengths. They are extremely devoted, extremely dedicated. They will spend their life savings to be try to get a guarantee of eternal life. They'll give of themselves in a holy war to try to be guaranteed paradise. And that's not how paradise is gained. That's not how we're right with God. Because if you are working, you're always thinking, have I done enough? And it's more terrifying to live your whole life, have I done enough, than it is to sit in a wheelbarrow being wheeled by someone who is fallible, someone who is a mere human. And the laws of nature, the mist, the wind, the birds, the sneezing, everything else is in play. It's a terrifying ride. No guarantee. But this isn't how salvation is. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. So what is he getting at? He's telling us righteousness, God's righteousness is given to us as a gift. And to the one who does not work, but expects the gift of righteousness. How do you get that gift of righteousness? Well, we saw it back in verse 26. The one who has faith in Jesus. How did Abraham get it? He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. How does verse 5 explain it? The one who is justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You have to trust God, have to trust Christ alone. So what do we learn from Abraham and what do we learn today? Boasting is always eliminated. Nobody gets right with God by their own works. Abraham had a lot to boast about. Religious people have a lot to boast about, but not before God. It's always a gift for the trusting ungodly. Do you agree with Romans 1.18 to 3.22 that you are ungodly? That you are a sinner? That you are not right with God? No matter how much you have tried to earn favor of God, hoping that good works outweigh bad works and your good works are more than the bad works. And it's not that way. God doesn't pull out a scale with works at the end and that's who determines who gets in heaven. It's never like that in the Bible. It is like this. Old Testament it was like this. New Testament it's like this. God is the one who is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
He justifies the ungodly. He makes the ungodly right. And so you and I may talk to someone, as I have talked to someone who committed murder at one point and said, God can't save me, I'm too bad. And he knows he's ungodly. He spent time in prison because he's ungodly. And there are people in prison today, they know they're ungodly. And you tell them, there is one person who can justify the ungodly. And you aren't able to work for it because if you're incarcerated, you can't go to church. You can't go door to door. You can't make a pilgrimage somewhere. You can't do all the pillars of your religion if you are limited physically. And yet, it's not about your works. And if it's not about your works, then everyone, then salvation is available to everyone, not just those who have the physical ability, the mental ability, the financial ability to carry out all these works. It's a gift. But you have to trust and you have to agree with God, not suppress the truth and unrighteous. You have to agree with the word of God that you are indeed ungodly. And our passage concludes with verses 6 to 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. This is the third time that we see God counts us righteous. God gives righteousness to us. David says this. When does David live? David lives a thousand years after Abraham and a thousand years before Jesus, before the Romans have this letter. So David is also separated from time, from Abraham. He doesn't live at the same time. And he writes a lot of the Psalms, at least 75 that we know of are attributed to David, half of them. And David writes Psalm 32 that we read together. And so he read the whole Psalm, and, and uh, Paul here quotes uh, part of um, the first two verses. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. You know when David writes Psalm 32? It's a confession psalm. After he sins with Bathsheba. Psalm 32 and 51 are confession psalms. If you had to tell David he is ungodly, would he agree with you? He'd say, oh, yes. I took a man's wife. I killed that man. And in the process of killing him, other innocent men died. And I have been racked with guilt ever since those days. He knew he was ungodly. And he knew where to go to be right again with God because he wrote many psalms before that sin and he writes psalms after that sin. But during that time of away from God, he doesn't write psalms because he can't, because he is ungodly. And he knows where to go to, to be restored to the, on, the only one who can make the ungodly godly, the ungodly righteous. And David writes of this restoration of himself to God in Psalm 32. And he starts with, verse 7 is the first uh, verse which we saw in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
That's the same word that's been used throughout this text, counted as a gift, counted as righteousness. Same word is used from Abraham. It was counted to him as righteousness, whom the Lord does not credit him, hold his sin against him. The blessing of being forgiven. It never gets old, being forgiven. If you have sinned grievously against someone that you love dearly and you ask them to forgive you, you spell out how your sin made them feel, it hurt them, you may have meant to hurt them, you may have not meant to hurt them, but you hurt them nonetheless. And you go into detail having thought about how your sin against them made them feel. It made their life harder. And if they're going to forgive you, they are going to have to endure the pain and not get restitution for all. You can't take it away. You can't go back in the past. And forgiveness is a wonderful thing. This word means to take it away. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are taken away. See, what we try to do in justifying ourselves is thinking, if I just focus on my religion, my morality, changing what God expects in Romans 1 to thinking it's not that big a deal. Everybody lives immoral lives. So I'm just fitting in. I'm trying to be more moral than the really immoral people around me. And it doesn't work that way because you are committing lawless deeds. David knew exactly what he had done wrong when he was convicted by God, convicted by his word, convicted by Nathan the prophet. And when Nathan told him the story, of the wealthy man with many sheep and the wealthy man takes the one precious little lamb of the poor man. And when he realized that story was against him, he knew it. He knew it. It's like, okay, that's it. I'm done. He breaks before God. He's broken over his sin. You can read about his brokenness in Psalm 51 and then 32. So what does... Verses 6 and 7, I should have 6 to 8 here. What does this uh, encourage us with? We are reassured by the Old Testament. What is the reassuring part of this? After 322, this is a very positive, this book gets really positive really quickly. What's the positive part of this? If you look at verse 7 and verse 8 in your Bible, You'll notice a word, same word. If you have a um, study Bible, it may tell you another translation for that word. We don't use the word blessed a lot or maybe not know exactly what it means, but here it means happy. Happy. If you got to Romans 1.18 to 3.22 and you weren't happy, because of the, you are crushed by the weight of your sin. You realize you are guilty before God. You had nothing to say to yourself to defend you. You knew you were wrong. You knew you were unrighteous. You knew you were ungodly. You knew you deserved to be apart from God for all eternity. 
And then God gives you his righteousness as a gift. <laughs> you know you don't deserve it. And the older we get and the more gifts that we receive, every time we receive a gift, it attaches us to the giver and it should cause us to be thankful. And every time we get a gift, the older we get, the, imma the more immature we are, we think we deserve gifts. But the, more, the older we get, the more mature we get, the more we, don't, we realize we don't deserve anything. Any checks in the mail, any inheritances that are heading your way, you realize, I don't deserve this. When you, you and I read Romans 1 through 3, we, you know what we deserve? We deserve hell. We deserve to be falling and burning for all eternity. And anything that's not that is a gift. So we are reassured by the Old Testament of what it's like to be forgiven. And when we are forgiven, it's a sure thing. It is not, hey, hop in this wheelbarrow and I hope I can get you across this, this tightrope. It's a sure thing. David knew it. Because when he knew where to go to take his sin, he knew that his lawless deeds would be taken away, forgiven. He knew that his sins would be covered, never to be brought up against him again. It caused him to write Psalm 32 and say, Blessed, happy is the person who's forgiven. We're reassured by the Old Testament that when God gives us His righteousness, as we have trusted Him to do so, that it always results in blessing and happiness. Always. Because if you and I think about hell and eternity for any length of time, it should scare you half to death. I mean, you can th imagine being on a tightrope I don't want you to have a dream tonight about this, but if you're, on a, if you're in a dream and you're falling and you wake up in bed and you're, oh, and you wake up and you thought you were in the tightrope and you thought Blondine lost you, okay? And you wake up and when you and I have nightmares and we wake up, what's your first thought? I'm so glad that was a dream. <laughs> I'm so glad that bear didn't catch me. I'm so glad I wasn't in the wheelbar. I'm so glad whatever it was, the bizarre thoughts we have in dreams that you think, oh man, I'm so glad that was a dream. Reality, though, is when you and I, this isn't a dream, have God's righteousness because we're trusting in Christ alone. When God gives us his righteousness, we are reassured by an Old Testament saint, Abraham, by the teaching of what Paul's going through here in Romans 4, and then assured by the blessing that came to one of the grossest sinners of all time, David. We are guaranteed, guaranteed God's righteousness. It is not 99.9% .9 depending on weather and birds and sneezing. It is 100% guaranteed. This is how salvation will cause all of us who have tasted it and are enjoying it to smile. As I sat with a dying saint, 
Barbara Maskell about a year ago now. She was terrified of death. I took her to Romans 8, and we read the end of Romans 8. And I said, Barb, you may be days or weeks away from waking up in heaven. And she was 94 at the time. She didn't want to die in that nursing home. And it wasn't the nicest of nursing homes. But after reading and talking through Romans 8, she wasn't terrified. She was smiling. And she was smiling because she realized how close she was to heaven. See, we get so attached to things of this earth that we lose sight of heaven and thinking, oh man, I hope I can live to see this or this or this or this. And you usually want to live longer than what God (laughs) wants you to live here. But when we think about our salvation in these terms, that God gives us His righteousness, we don't boast about it. We aren't entitled to it. We realize we're ungodly and we're just trusting Jesus' righteousness. And when we're in that situation, it causes a smile to be on our face. And then when David writes this 3,000 years ago, and you read this, you're like, David wrote this for me. David wrote Psalm 32 for me. Blessed is the one whose transgressions, lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He doesn't credit us with our sin any longer. I told you we were going to end with this psalm. Let's go there, Psalm 32. You will see groaning, God's hand is heavy upon David, his strength is dried up. It matches very closely with Psalm 51 as well. The physical trial of unconfessed sin, secret sin. is weighing on this person, weighing on David. And then look at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. So there's two ways of getting rid of the grossness of sin. We can try to cover it, which David tried. We know the story. Or we can allow God to cover it. And we will only be blessed if God covers our sin instead of us trying to cover it. So because if God doesn't cover our sin, then it's still between us and God and likely between us and other people. And God teaches us through David how to get rid of sin. Acknowledging your sin to God is how you get rid of sin. And not trying to cover up the iniquity as the grossness or guilt of your sin. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions with the Lord. Confess means to agree with God. I have broken, transgression is breaking God's law. And when David confessed his transgressions to the Lord, which he had tried desperately to cover on his own for probably over a year, when he acknowledged not covering, confessed, then God forgave the iniquity of his sin. Therefore, now he goes into teaching mode. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And whenever God humbles you, that's the time he can be found. If you're proud, justifying and trying to cover your sin, he will not be found by you. He will only be found if you are humble, acknowledging your sin and confessing it. You may be found, verse 6 continues, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. And David had a lot of trouble after his sin with Bathsheba. And he had to run to God to hide, preserve his life from his own son who tried to kill him. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I'll teach you. I'll be there with you. I'll, I'll, I'll show you how to, how to walk with God. And he says in verse 9, Don't be like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. He started the psalm with, Blessed is the one, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He's happy is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He's not trying to deceive God. He's open before God. God forgives him, and he is happy. Now he closes the psalm with joy as well. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And if you're here today and you're weighed down by politics, you're weighed down with cultural news that's coming at us so fast that we can't even, uh, our head's spinning with how fast our culture is going away from God. What's the solution? Rejoice in your salvation. If you're not saved, Look back at verse 5 and, and let that be your prayer. If you need help, we'll walk with you through that. This week, according to Romans 4, 1 to 8, I'm going to give you three challenges here. Don't boast before God and men that you have God's righteousness. No one likes someone who received a gift and that recipient starts bragging about it. It shows immaturity. It shows that we need to grow because we understand what we really deserve. So don't boast before God or men that you have God's righteousness. Second thing, thank God daily for his gift of righteousness. If you and I aren't right with God, we have no chance of eternity with him in heaven. God does not allow unrighteous, ungodly people into his heaven. 
thank God daily for his gift of righteousness, and then rejoice. Rejoice before God and others that he took your sins away. You didn't cover your sin. You're not manipulating people to not focus on your sin. You have confessed your sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive you, and he's cleansed you from all unrighteousness, and now you are like David. Having been forgiven, now you are rejoicing, and you can teach others to focus on the Lord and rejoice as well. Let's pray. Our Father, guard our hearts and our minds this week so that we will not boast of what you have given us in salvation. We thank you so much for your righteousness. We could not earn it. It is very clear that we can't do things to get it. It is simply trusting in Christ alone. Thank you for Christ's coming, living a sinless life, dying on the cross, being buried and resurrected the third day. Our hope is in him and his full payment for our sin. We are thankful for his paying for our sin. And as you have taught us through David to rejoice because of our blessed, happy position in Christ, help us to rejoice this week, no matter our circumstances, no matter the news, no matter uh, what's going on. Help us to rejoice in our hearts and before others. Put a smile on our faces as we talk to them of who you are and that you can forgive their sin as well and take their sin away. Thank you for taking our sins away. In Jesus' name, amen.